Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus, and we're picking up with a new step this evening, uh, step number five on true repentance, uh, along with a description of a place called the prison, uh, which is known, you know, certainly in uh, the circles who read uh, John Climacus to be one of the more challenging uh, ask stories to read uh, about and to figure out how this would fit in certainly with our vision of repentance, but also the mercy of God, what it's really seeking to teach us. And so it'll be a challenge. John begins, as always, by defining the vice or virtue. And so he'll begin in the first couple of paragraphs to define repentance for us. And then before long, he'll uh, take us into the story of those who had broken their vows and so enter into a uh, community sort of outside of the uh, normal monastery and uh, embrace a life of this deep and continuous penance. So again, we're on page 97, at the bottom of the page. Once John outran Peter, and now obedience precedes repentance. For the one who came first is a figure of obedience. The other is the other of repentance. So it's interesting. I think what John is telling us here is that even though obedience is so highly valued and seen as this essential virtue uh, for the Christian and makes one a confessor of the faith, when one embraces it fully, that you imitate Christ and bear witness to him in this very powerful way, that repentance in, uh, in some way out, outreaches it, that it runs with a swiftness or allows the uh, Christian to run with the swiftness towards Christ and towards holiness, that this humbling of oneself, acknowledging of one's sin, draws one back to the, the fullness of intimacy with God and the fullness of grace. And, uh, and so John spends a great deal of time with it and goes to great pains to define it, to give us extremely powerful examples of it, and as well as to uh, give us the particulars of how we would foster it within our day-to-day -day life. It begins with the def definition. Repentance is the renewal of baptism. Repentance is a contract with God for a second life. And so it's a powerful thing to say, a renewal of baptism, that this turning of the self back toward God, even after a great fall, is a kind of act of faith that opens us up once again to the cleansing power of God's grace. And uh, it's for this reason I think we can, that, that Jesus says in the gospel that all of heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner, that it gives joy to all of heaven when there is this movement within the human heart back toward God, uh, and that it's something that is truly transformative. Uh, in fact, it's a second life. It allows us to uh, recommit ourselves to God and maybe even in a deeper way than we ever have before in the past. The penitent is a buyer of humility, or as you see in the footnote, a shocker 
for humility. And so one who's truly repentant is looking for places where uh, one can be humbled or ways that one can humble oneself in, in, in life, whether it's in the service of others uh, or duties taken up, penances taken, anything that uh, reminds, I think, the individual of where they stand before God as debtors and in need of his mercy. And so anything that allows one see, to see the truth about oneself is to be highly valued. Repentance is constant distrust of bodily comfort. And so for a person who has known a great fall, and especially falls that come through the seeking the satisfaction of one's appetites, or desires, one is going to develop a kind of healthy suspicion of those things, not to, to demonize them, but to acknowledge that for us, that this is often the entrance of sin, that uh, because of our fallen state and disordered desires and our desire to, uh, to satisfy the self, uh, that we often choose these things over and above God. And so the truly repentant soul is going to become very vigilant uh, in being attentive to the comforts uh, that we often will seek out on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and certainly we, I think here in the West, seek those out more than anyone, whether it's food or clothing or material goods. Uh, we're constantly, we constantly have our eye out. We're constantly shopping for the things of this world, whereas the repentant soul is going to be shopping uh, to rid himself of those things, to humble himself uh, in mind and body in order that he might rely fully upon God. Repentance is self-condemning reflection and carefree self-care. So each of these little statements is packed full uh, of uh, things that we could think about or contemplate. And this statement is certainly true in that regard. Self-condemning uh, reflection or self-condemning uh, uh, view of oneself, that a person who sins freely acknowledges it, sees themselves in that sense as a convent, convict, and John will say this actually explicitly. And I think this helps us understand a little bit more fully the image that he'll put before us of this place called the prison, a kind of penitentiary where men go to take up a life of greater penance uh, because they've fallen in some serious and grave fashion. And so the person who's truly repentant is going to be quick to judge the self rather than others, and is going to keep the focus upon their own weakness and poverty rather than projecting it out onto others as we often do. Carefree self-care. Uh, we have a tendency to be hypochondriacs. You know, every little ache and pain we worry about and we fuss over ourselves as we start to get a little bit of a sore, scratchy throat. Oh no, I'm getting sick. I have to run out and get my coldies, you know, uh, lozenges. And, uh, and so we can be hypersensitive 
to the experience that we have of, of the poverty of, of what it is to be a human being. You know, that we get colds, we, we get sick, you know, we feel aches and pains, especially as we age. We have knees that go bad and that need surgery. And, uh, and so uh, a person who's repentant is so focused upon the interior, what's going on, seeking healing uh, within the human heart and healing in that relationship with God that they become carefree, as it were, in terms of the normal things that perhaps we become overly anxious about. They become uh, anxiety-free about, you know, whether it's hunger, you know, physical hunger, sleep, or something like one's physical health, uh, because of that intense focus upon repentance and turning back to God. Repentance is the daughter of hope and the renunciation of despair. So the daughter of hope, uh, we've often mentioned that hope is often one of those virtues that is rarely talked about. You know, this trust in the promises of God. And so our capacity to turn back to God after a serious fall arises out of our trust in his promise uh, to offer forgiveness and mercy to the one who, who turns back to him uh, with true humility. And so it's an act of hope uh, to, to repent, not of despair. And in fact, he says it's a renunciation of despair. Like true re repentance is not going to lead a person into despondency, but ultimately is going to lead them to joy. And so if a person gets uh, stuck in a state of uh, not simply self-contempt, but self-contempt that leads to self-hatred and a doubt of God's mercy and uh, to the, the place where one's sins loom so large that they block out God, they can no longer see God or the potential to experience his love and his grace again. So true repentance is something that rids us of despair. A penitent is an undisgraced convict. So he sees himself as guilty and is guilty of, of the, the sin, of the failure, but undisgraced uh, in, in the sense that he turns back to God. He acknowledges the truth of it. And in, in this sense, uh, he's freed from the, the shame that often we carry along with us when we hold on to our sin. And, uh, and so one who does penance for past failure acknowledges that sin is unburdened, at least from the, the, the shame of it, because they receive the forgiveness. The penance is the, the striving to... Uh, Enter, enter back into the, the fullness of that life and to repair, to make reparation, to repair the damage that is done by the, the sin. So it's trusting in that mercy and that grace of God, but it's also acknowledging that one in their contrition has to have this firm commitment, not only not to commit the sin again, but to do everything in, in the power to bring about a kind of healing 
that this, this sin has brought to us. Uh, repentance is reconciliation with the Lord by the practice of good deeds contrary to the sins. And so the beautiful thing about reading the fathers is that they put before us so often these clear remedies. What is it that I do when I fall into a particular sin? What, what is the healing balm for, for me here to help me uh, turn away from this in such a way that I, I do experience healing and then not fall into it again? Repentance is purification of the conscience. And so we've mentioned before that the conscience is something that is given to us by God, that is that voice of truth within us. And it is often rebuking uh, for, for us when we have sinned, uh, in a sense, to awaken us once again to that truth and, and to help us return to the path that God had set us upon. And so our repentance purifies the conscience to the point that it no longer rebukes us because we've embraced the truth. So whenever we hold on to our sin or whenever we allow shame uh, to make us uh, seek to cover ourselves and distract ourselves from it, we continue to uh, carry the, the burden of it even if it, I think it slips out of our mind, which we can be very good at doing, you know, if we, we push it out to the margins or tell ourselves we'll deal with it later, uh, you know, the more that we put it off, the, the more that experience uh, of repentance, of sorrow can begin to wane. And we can forget about it, but the reality of its impact upon us does not diminish or disappear magically. And so a lot of, I think, the anxiety that we experience, the, the weightiness of life at times, is our carrying the things that we have neglected to attend to uh, in, in our spiritual life. Repentance is the voluntary endurance of all afflictions. This is a hard one that, you know, the one who's truly penitent is willing to embrace the afflictions that come to us through life, because in many ways, they're the things that free us from our attachment to this world, that they make it clear to us uh, our poverty, our weakness. They become a, rem a reminder for us of our ultimate destiny, which is in this world, which is death. And so they bring, it bring, they bring things into, afflictions bring things into perspective for us very clearly. They allow us to see with a certain sharpness uh, what it is that we need to do, what's of importance here for us. And so if we're in perfect health and, you know, we have all that we want and we feel secure within the world, you know, I think we are less inclined, again, to be attentive to the interior state of our soul, that we become focused upon all these things and maintaining them and the fleeting pleasure that they bring. And sometimes it's only through uh, the, the loss of certain things that our, our eyes are opened. The penitent is the inflictor 
of his own punishments. And so a penitent soul is, is one who freely and voluntarily takes upon himself certain penances uh, in order to bring about this repair, to make reparation. So uh, those who are in the prison that John describes voluntarily embrace that path for themselves, uh, acknowledging again them, the, their debt and a debt that they, as it were, want, want to pay, not uh, distrusting the mercy of God, but acknowledging that uh, their sin brought harm to that relationship, but most especially to their, their own souls. And finally, repentance is a mighty persecution of the stomach and a striking of the soul into its vigorous awareness. Uh, a powerful statement, you know, the, the persecution of the stomach. Uh, again, something that is neglected in the spiritual life in general, uh, that we, we don't uh, persecute the stomach. You know, the, the first appetite, the bodily appetite that we need to bring into order. We're in, we strengthen our will in regard to it and find freedom in the face of it, but also humble the mind and the body and the, and the process. And so the penitent soul is going to enter into the practice of, <coughs> excuse me, fasting in an even more rigorous fashion. And in doing this, he says, he strikes the soul into a vigorous awareness uh, or nepsis, watchfulness, attentiveness. So the humbling of the body through fasting awakens uh, the mind and the heart to be attentive uh, to what we are either exposing ourselves or have been exposed to in order that we might uproot it. So it's a rather lengthy uh, definition, a lot of different aspects to it, which we'll unpack in the pages to come. But anyone have any thoughts? I see Eric wrote here, I've heard it said that the first sin involved eating, which is why fasting is so important. Well, in part, you know, I think that was the source of the temptation. Uh, certainly obedience, uh, loss, lack of obedience, pride, you know, wanting to become like God. Uh, but the thing that pulled them into that was the attraction of eating from the, the very tree that God commanded that they not eat from. And so, yes, you know, fasting has been uh, usually that first step in the ascetic life. Uh, because, you know, our appetites, our bodily appetites are the things that we are often most aware of in this spiritual struggle. And we need to begin from the outside in, make that movement from the outside in. So the, we deal with the vices that are of a more bodily nature before we can deal with something like the subtlety of pride. Uh, which would be considered one of the more, more of the spiritual vices. Any more comments before we move on? Okay. Gather together and come near all who have angered God, 
and come and listen to what I expound to you. Assemble and see what he has revealed to my soul for your edification. Let us give first place and first honor to the story of the dishonored yet honored workers. Let all of us who have suffered an unexpected and inglorious fall listen, watch, and act. Rise and be seated, you who through your falls are lying prostrate. Attend, my brothers, attend to my word. Incline your ears, you who wish to be reconciled afresh with God by true conversion. And so he's setting up his listeners to be particularly attentive here, that what he's going to present them with is certainly challenging, uh, but I think I want to talk about it in a certain way that it makes it clear to us that it's also mystically drawing us in to the passion of Christ and into the Paschal mystery on this very deep level. It's showing us how deep the solidarity exists and the intimacy exists between ourselves and others and, and Christ himself who enters into the sin of the world. So to the point that Paul said, he who knew no sin made himself to be sin in order that we might be saved. That Christ enters into the, the very depths of it and even descends into the depths of hell itself. And I think, and I want to preface our reading of his description and of his story here with this, that what we, we see going on here, I think, is uh, a radical participation in the life of Christ, that we, we see him enter into this warfare with sin and, uh, and its consequences and enter into it freely on our behalf. And our union and communion with him uh, means a participation in that redemptive work, but also a participation in what he experienced in his embrace uh, of that reality, his entering into the very darkness of the sin of the world to the point where he sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the darkness becomes so deep that on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And in our union with Christ uh, and becoming one with him, you know, all that is true about his life, all that he experiences becomes true of the body of Christ. We participate radically in the life of Christ. And we often neglect uh, to think that that means all of it, you know, the entirety of that life and that love that redeems, but also the love that pours itself out, that love that is cruciform and that bore the sin of the world. And I think we have to keep this in mind as we, we read now the story of those who uh, a story that will stretch us to the limits of faith and to understand why would individuals embrace this way of life and how can we understand it and what does it teach us about mourning one's own sin 
and the nature of sorrow and compunction and our response in our repentance to uh, not only embracing the, the grace of God, but again, ma making reparation, repairing the wound of sin. Uh, how is it that we participate in the work of Christ in that fashion? How is that enacted in our, our life in, in a concrete way? So, page 98. Weak as I am, I heard that there was a certain powerful and strange way of life and humility for those living in a separate monastery, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a separate monastic establishment called the prison, which was under the authority of the above mentioned man, that light of lights. So when I was still staying there, I asked the good man to allow me to visit it. And the great man, never wishing to grieve a soul in any way, agreed to my request. And so coming to this abode of penitence and to this true land of mourners, I actually saw, if, if it is not audacious to say so, what in most cases the eye of the careless person never saw and what the ear of a slothful person never heard and what never entered the heart of the indolent person. That is, I saw such deeds and words as can incline God to mercy such activities and postures as speedily attract his love for men. And so he's acknowledging right here from the beginning that he's presenting them with something that they would never and that he had never encountered or that they would perhaps would never have uh, wondered about or thought about. That often in our slothfulness or our carelessness, uh, our hatred for sin and our love for virtue, our desire to please God, or our sorrow for having turned away from him uh, becomes dulled. And what John saw here was just the opposite. Uh, it, it, the pain of, of breaking that relationship of, of the sin itself moves these men to a, a compunction, a sorrow, a willingness to embrace the deepest affliction in order to root out the sin that had led them to, to break their, their vows to God. Okay. Number five. I saw some of those guilty yet guiltless men standing in open air all night till morning and never moving their feet by force of nature pitifully dazed by sleep yet they allowed themselves no rest but reproached themselves and drove away sleep with dishonor and insults others lifted up their eyes to heaven and with wailings and outcries implored help from there others stood in prayer with their hands tied behind their backs like criminals, their faces darkened by sorrow, bent to the earth. They regarded themselves as unworthy to look up to heaven. Overwhelmed by the embarrassment of their thoughts and conscience, they could not find anything to say or pray about to God. How or with what to begin their prayers. But filled with darkness and a blank despair, 
they offered to God nothing but a speechless soul and a voiceless mind. And so their deep sorrow and penance alters even the way that they pray. And you hear some of the monks refer to prayer as being more of a groan than it is uh, uh, linking of words together, a deep cry from the depths of, of the, the soul or the heart. And, and so in these men, uh, with this very deep insight into their own sin, we, we find this magnified, again, in a way that those who might be more careless in terms of, of their own sin, and the things that are in reality sinful, a turning away from God, uh, are not going to, to grasp. And so I think in some ways, you know, this is challenging us uh, on a very deep level because we, we really bend over backwards. When we talk about the mercy of God or when we, we talk about sin and in particular about repentance, there is this you know, really strong and almost hyper-conscious attempt not to make people uncomfortable in, in the sense of acknowledging the simple truth of it, not to shame, but in the sense of acknowledging uh, not only the destructiveness of sin, but the, the laziness or neglect that often leads to it that we can be formed, and I think in many ways are formed, where our consciences can be dulled, uh, to have this sensitivity to desire God and to desire to do his will above all things. And so almost in a very casual way, throughout the course of the day, we will make these decisions to put the self, the ego, at center stage. And in our own minds, I think that these things often seem slight to us, uh, that there isn't a kind of gravity about them, even, even though that placing the ego at the center of our life, the self at the center, is a, an idolatry. It's basically the worship of the self and of our own needs whether they're physical or emotional or whatever they might be tied to. And there can be such a lack of attentiveness to what's going on in the interior life that these things pass us by without moving the heart, without uh, our conscience rebuking us in the face of them. And so what John is saying here is that in our carelessness, this might not make any sense to us or might seem rather extreme or surprising to us to see, see those who are responding and, and treating themselves as true debt debtors or convicts. And again, those who uh, take upon themselves penance and enter into a penitentiary precisely to overcome that carelessness. It's not as though the, the, the mercy of God is called into question. It's what is seen is the lack of uh, desire for that mercy or holding that love cheap. 
and the ways that we do that. And for a, a soul that has been sensitized uh, to the movements of the heart, this is going to, the compunction that's going to arise is going to be very deep. Okay. Any thoughts or comments so far before we move on? You don't have to be afraid to bring up questions about this because there have been a lot of priests and monks and nuns who sort of uh, been very uncomfortable with it. In paragraph seven, that seems like a debilitating shame. How would one break free from that? Others stood in prayer with their hands tied behind their break free from that. Well, I think they saw it wasn't their responsibility to break free from it, that they were would be made free uh, when God made it clear to the soul that a kind of healing had taken place. And there what you know often uh, wasn't the guarantee of that assurance depending upon the, the nature of the sin, the humility of the individual, and the, the nature of that humility, which John will get into in later paragraphs. The more humble the soul, the greater the assurance becomes, or the more clearly one might see it. And for each individual, that can be quite different. And so the, the pain of the shame of one sin, of seeing that shame in, in all of the, the fullness, full light of truth uh, remains. You know, I, I think what we see in the Garden of Eden, for example, is this desire to cover oneself up, you know, to hide oneself from God. And I think in our day and age, you know, shame has taken on certain connotations. And uh, John Paul, I think it's in his work, is it Love and Responsibility, perhaps, where he talks a great deal about shame, that there's something, you know, very important about it in the sense that it does allow us to see the truth. It is an acknowledgement of, of, of the truth. And we experience on some level that same pull to, to hide from it and to seek to hide it from God. And what we see in this monastery is no hiding it uh, at all or, or hiding the weight and the, the significance of it. You know, I think often priests, you know, out of compassion, I think, will move very quickly to, uh, to diminish the, the sorrow that a penitent might feel and uh, or to praise them for the confession. Uh, you know, that was a great confession, you know, kind of thing, Thumb, two thumbs up on that. And to sort of ease, as it were, the impact of the acknowledgement of one's sin. And I, you know, I get it because I think there, there is this sense of the delicacy of the human heart, 
and of one's piety and that you don't want to drive a person into despair. But I think what we, we see here is that the more refined one's conscience becomes and the, the deeper the intimacy becomes with Christ, the clearer our vision becomes of the, the nature of sin and how destructive it is. And that it is something that we would want to hate and to uproot. That the flip side of the coin of love for God is this hatred for sin. And, uh, you know, we're very uncomfortable with that, that language, the language of hate. And that's come up in this group before. You know, you cannot be my disciples unless you hate father, mother, brother, sister, but, and yes, even your own self. And I think what we see manifested in this is this kind of self-contempt uh, in, in the sense of not holding on to any illusion about goodness arising out of oneself or the ability to raise oneself up out of one's sin about how dependent we are upon the mercy and the grace of God and that we lay ourselves before him and, and this sin and we take upon ourselves whatever discipline is necessary in order that his grace might uproot, uh, uproot that sin as completely as possible. So a life that is fully focused upon God and desires to do his will above all things is going to see these realities. And I think this is why John in the previous paragraph says, you know, for, for all of us who might be more careless this is going to be seem to be a strange way of life. And if we're slothful or indolent, even more so, we're probably going to reject what is going to be said here, what is being said. Daniel. Sorry, I couldn't type this fast enough. So if I okay, say, sure. Um, I think something, I may be misguided here, but if I'm not, I think it might be helpful to um, but this kind of makes me think of, of what's to me like, really confusing part of scripture where Paul says about Christ that he was made perfect by suffering. And I think that like, you know, the prison, they're not the, the prison, you know, the monks in the prison enter it just out of like a spirit of masochism or something. But it was in repentance and to find Christ in it. And um, I think that it kind of ties with that part where, you know, where St. Paul says Christ was perfect by suffering, that the, these same monks are seeking out Christ and seeking out perfection within the suffering of the prison and not just seeking out the suffering itself, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And I think it's hard, I think, for us to look at this or to read it and not see it as masochism. And uh, a lot, even I mentioned Thomas Merton said, you know, he saw all sorts of psychological disorders in reading this. And uh, 
And I've been, you know, reading it for 30 years now. And every time I come to this, it is the most challenging thing to read. But, and I think it's only more recently than that I, I began to connect it more and more to the cross itself and the what the cross means, what it shows us. And it, it shows us the, the destructiveness of sin and the cost of sin. And that, you know, what God does on our behalf in order to free us from that burden, but also what, uh, what we are called to in our union with Christ, in our own struggle with sin too. That, you know, the cross is going to be a part of that reality and the, the burden of that and the burden and the poverty of our own sin we are called in a sense to carry as Christ carried it and this is something that I think that we aren't often willing to do you know we hear often about uh you know making this uh having this clear purpose of amendment and taking a penance, but it's largely become symbolic in, in the sense that it's not reparative and that it, it, I don't think it is seen as something that has meaning or significant meaning other than the fulfilling of it, which gives a kind of psychological relief. I've said my rosary. And so again, I can push this reality out of my mind, you know, the, the, the breakdown of this relationship with God or my having chosen a path that perhaps was significantly sinful and engrave in its matter, matter that I have embraced that and, and yet and come to confession and there can be a kind of psychological relief there, but is there spiritual healing that takes place? And is there this desire never to commit it again? Do we understand the nature of the love that is given to us to free us from the burden of the sin and the consequences of it? Or do we, we take that for, for granted? Ambrose. I find it difficult to reconcile what appears to be dwelling in sorrow with confidence in God's work in our lives and the lives of others. If the promises are true, that it seems like we should mostly dwell in joy and gratitude as penitents. Why? Are you asking me? <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm not being flippant. Uh, okay. It's just that I think, you know, what we find. It was, it was fathers, more prompt to see what your thoughts are, you know, on that, okay. on that difficulty. Well, there is this clear movement in, in the fathers of joy being tied to the sorrow. You know, the uh, joyful sorrow, this compunction, penthos, where there is this deep repentance that leads one away from sin and back to God and to intimacy with God. And so we're right in saying is that the, the sorrow 
should give way ultimately to the joy because it's returning the repentance is drawing us back to that relationship with god but we we make the the sorrow so if, if there is sorrow at all uh so minuscule that it no, it often does not bear the fruit of uh, an alteration of one's life or attitude about how am I living for God? Do I love virtue? Do I hate the sin? Or am I simply experiencing the shame or the breakdown in my sense of self-esteem because I've committed something that humiliates me on a certain level? And so I have this vehicle within the life of faith through confession to address that. Uh, but is, is it something that is that we are taking hold of in such a way and the grace that is offered to us through it to help us enter into that life more fully, to conform ourselves to Christ and to deepen that aversion to sin and our attraction to, to virtue. And so I want us to be able to read through this whole thing of the prison because I think he's stretching us on purpose and he's, he's jarring our sensibilities before he lays out all the things that he's going to talk about, including uh, that penance sh should and repentance sh should not give way to despair. And that it's contrary to despair before he begins to talk about the particulars of it and how we manifest it and embrace it in our life. I think he wants us to see with a great clarity the, the, the darkness of sin, the, the weight of it, and to see again that in light of the reality of the cross and of Christ's own suffering under the weight and burden of our sin. And not in, to the extent that we lose sight of the love and the mercy of God, but again, that we, we don't take it for granted or lose sight of the fact that the spiritual life is a bloody war against sin. And, you know, we have so domesticated the gospel as well as the spiritual life as a whole that uh, we are no longer engaged in that spiritual battle, uh, have clarity about the vices or the virtues, uh, how the vices are overcome, how the virtues are fostered, the depth of prayer, of being attentive to, to God in such a way that we allow him to draw us into the, the depth of prayer that he desires or allow him to draw us along the path that he desires for us or to, to offer us a cross, to give us a cross that he wills us to carry. And, you know, a spirituality that is remains on the surface, again, that knows about Christ and maybe even takes comfort in the cross, the resurrection, but is not really immersed in it in such a way that it's a true relationship with God or that it's transformative. You remember me uh, bringing up that video on the last anchorite, Father Lazarus, 
and his saying, you know, if we pray in the morning and we pray some at night, we go to confession every once in a while and receive the Holy Eucharist. He says, you know, we have no faith. It's an auxiliary construction that it's a psychological construct that is part of our life that holds uh, together a certain kind of identity for us, you know, gives us a certain vision of ourself, but it's not, we're not fully invested in it in, in the way that we are invested in things that we love. And so we want it to be a part of our life because it offers comfort on a certain level, but we don't want it enough really to allow it to shape, shape our life and our identity. And I think this is incredibly true and so powerfully true about the gospel you know, and about Christ himself, a revolutionary, the way that he looks at human life and the way that he looks at love and obedience to the, the will of, of God and what our life means in this world. I mean, he, he turns reality upside down. And so when I say we've domesticated it, is that we feel no voice of our conscience rebuking our, ourselves about the things that, uh, uh, that are certainly mentioned here. But I think we don't even have to go as far as this, as simply to, again, to look at our day-to-day -day life, the ways that we turn away from God, that we lose sight of him, that we ignore him, that we ignore the promptings of the spirit, that we choose the self over God or the truth. And so in reality, we have to ask ourselves, are, are we in, are we running the, the, the race? Are we fighting the good fight of faith? Or is it something that's simply a, a part of our life? And so again, I wasn't trying to be flippant in saying, yeah, and responding to your, where, where was it here? Should, should, should we mostly dwell in joy and gratitude as penitents? I think to say it that way is to sort of, you know, what does penitent, what does being a penitent mean then? You know, if, if we're living mostly in joy, if, is there a movement to joy or, uh, you know, that comes through acknowledging the reality of that sin and turning back to God and experiencing healing? Or, you know, is it an idea? Go ahead. Well, You're going to yeah, have if I go back to, sorry, cross-referencing the Evergatinos here, but there was a very early story about the, the valiant struggler, I think is what it was called, but it was someone who really failed and failed and failed, but always basically immediately turned back to God, you know, and it wasn't like I, I, this, the challenge I, I find with this, at least in part is this sort of implication that if our, our, our reconciliation with God is dependent upon some degree of us, you know, like, did we feel sorry enough or did we do the good works enough or, you know, like, it sort of starts straying into kind of Pelagian tendencies where it's like our salvation and reconciliation is like more dependent upon us doing these kind of exercises as opposed to 
God's action in our lives. Right. And I'm, I'm right with you there. And I think John is too. But, uh, and I think this is why I think he's presenting us with this at the beginning. Because I think he wants us to see the, the darkness and the magnitude of sin, as well as the, the greatness and the depth of God's love and mercy. He wants us to see that the meaning of the cross, that we would neither take sin lightly or the love and the mercy of God lightly. So he presents us with this image where it's stretched to the breaking point before he gets into the particulars in order to clarify and keep us from falling into the, the very errors that I think you're concerned about. And it does play out in the way that you you describe, you know, all, all the way that he talks about penance and and are not falling into despair, our greater trust in the mercy of God. Absolutely. But again, I think the reason so many people dismiss this story or see problems in it is because we aren't looking at it uh, through the cross. The cross is the cipher for us to understand this image that John is painting for us here that our, our contemplation of the cross should reveal to us both the, the, the ugliness and the weight of sin, but also the depths of God's love and what it leads him to do for us, a complete self-emptying. You know, in the incarnation, he takes on our poverty completely, and he, he bears the, the, the weight of the world's sin, all of its consequences, descends to hell, into the very depths of hell, and experiences darkness and separation from the Father. And if we lose sight of that, then I think we lose sight of the, the reality and the nature of, of that love, just how deep it extends. I, I, I don't think John wants us to lose sight of either thing what sin brought to humanity, but also what God did in order to raise us up out of it, that we would take neither for granted. And all I'm asking is that we try to view this through, again, the cipher of the cross, and then allow ourselves to move on to John, the rest of John's teaching throughout this step. That I'm okay, you know, I, I expect everybody to find this uncomfortable, or in, I'm not here to defend it so much as to say, okay, my reading of it has changed over the course of 30 years, and I've heard people's critique of it, and I understand that critique from a spiritual perspective as well as a psychological one, but I think all of that disappears when we, we see it in, in and through the lens of the cross. Because only it allow, allows us to see the magnitude of both things with a perfect clarity, love and mercy, but also the, the darkness and destructiveness of sin. Okay, An Angela and then Daniel. Um, yes, I, I'm very much with um, Ambrose and, and the critiquing of 
of this um, whole scenario. I mean, that's where I would go to, but um, quite recently I've, I've had a very bad break um, of my arm and I have a sense, I, I can't do, my whole life has changed because of it. Uh, it's been seven weeks now. And reading this, I feel metaphorically that I'm in that prison. And that one of the things that I'm very drawn to is abandonment to God's providence and to surrender to his will uh, and, and, and try not to be so willful. And I, I've been sort of, that's been a focus of my prayer for some time. And, and I feel like that's, that I've ended up in this prison <laughs> because of it. Apart from any, any theological ideas I might have uh, about what I like and don't like about this writing, I can really sense the depth and beauty of it because of the vicissitudes of my own life at the moment. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think it is through experiences like that we do begin to catch at least a glimpse of it. And often it is in these unexpected ways, you know, afflictions that we experience in mind and body in our or in our life as a whole, the circumstances of our life that open our eyes sometimes on the other side of these things to what God was doing that we would never have expected and certainly would never have chosen to go down that path. And yet we see God work through them in order to transform our hearts in, a lot, uh, that in such a way that we're able to enter into not only our relationship with him, but with others. We're able to love in a different way and to have compassion for others in their suffering or in their poverty that we would never have, have had before. And uh, I've had something similar. You know, I just, I went through a couple of years where I had chronic pain. I still have the chronic pain, but I went through it without knowing what it was about. And, uh, and it was not treated because it wasn't diagnosed. And basically I lost two years of my life. And uh, I've mentioned this before that once I was looking out the window of upstairs of, of the building and I could see all the students filing out after the late mass, the 9 p.m. mass and seeing them walk out, a thought came to my mind, I'm never going to say mass publicly again. And so I found myself in this spot that, oh, you know, that's it, I'm, I'm done kind of thing. And uh, eventually, you know, Three doctors are talking with each other, got to the point of making a diagnosis where it could be treat, treated, where I could then regain functionality. But, you know, what we don't see, and often in those times of affliction, is what, you know, the, in our participation in that cross, what God is doing. And I think what John is showing is this deep participation in the cross in a way that is hard for us to understand in the same way that it's often hard for us to understand the afflictions that we bear another way we understand it the two of us i mean 
through the physical affliction, we, we come to see a certain truth about ourselves, about life. But the, this is a, a deeper affliction, even the affliction, the brokenness of sin that maybe alters their vision and darkens, you know, they enter into the darkness of it. It's a kind of living hell. Uh, but John is allowing us to experience what that living hell is in and through this experience of these men in order to re reveal something to us. And I think, I, again, I wouldn't expect people to be comfortable or even like this kind of writing. All I would want is for people to suspend judgment enough that we can let ourselves to get to the other side of what John is writing here, to hear him at what he has to say after this and where he takes us from this point. It's a jarring starting point. It's like, oh my gosh, I want to quit re reading right now and stop reading the book because there's something you know, disordered here. But if we do so, I think we're missing the same thing that we would miss if we weren't reflective, reflecting on the other afflictions that we've experienced in our life or what you just talked about. That here we are invited to reflect upon those who experienced the affliction of sin on this very deep level that altered their experience of reality, that they entered into the hell of it. And the same, in, in this way that is reflective of the hell that Christ bore, on our, of bearing the whole weight of the sin of the world. This is what I think what we're meant to see, or at least catch, catch a glimpse of not wanting it, I think we're meant to be repulsed by it because it's repulsive. It's showing us something of the separation, the pain, the darkness of sin, and what, what it brings to people's lives. It's making it very, it's painting this portrait of, uh, of, of sin, and it's not going to be attractive to us. And I'm not saying, oh, we have to say, oh, this is pretty, this is beautiful, this is, you know, uh, uh, inspiring reading. I think it's far from it, you know, I think because of what we are being presented with. Ren. Um, sorry, I think we're all abandoning the typing protocol <laughs> on this chapter, but since we're so close to the end, I'll just go ahead and say it. So, I mean, I... I to find this very discomforting. And, you know, every time I read something like this, I'm like terrified that somehow I'm going to be called to participate in it to some degree, um, which is always where my mind goes. But um, I think what you were saying there at the end is sort of what's been on my mind, where it's like, this repentance actually reflects what sin is. You know, like, I just don't think my everyday experience of sin and confession and penance um, reflects or impresses upon me the reality that, like, sin to any degree eternally separates humanity from God forever. Like, 
that's a lot. That's a huge thing. Like, it's not like, oh, well, there were some little sins and then they made like a really big sin and then something bad happened. It's like eternal separation for always, forever. Like, uh, like, like in the readings from the gospel the other day, like an un, an unbridgeable gap, an unbridgeable chasm between humanity and God opens up with the entrance of sin into the world and and it's all darkness and it's all horror and and like there's no light at all like there's just there's nothing of God in hell where sin exists completely or does whatever you know existence non-existence whatever that is but like and I feel like this repentance begins to actually reflect that um my repentance doesn't and sackcloth and ashes in Nineveh doesn't like it's better than mine but it still doesn't reflect that and um I don't know I mean I don't think you know in his mercy he's not demanding of us that our repentance does mirror the severity of sin because but what does mirror the severity of sin is him on the cross and like you said before that's been sanitized so much that we're not seeing this like perfectly destroyed person who's made perfectly sin and who's made perfectly suffering and um and just like torn apart in every way by sin until completely like exsanguinated he's like hanging from the cross so um I don't know I think it's horrifying and yet I think it as far as what it says about the nature of sin, it's far more truthful than what's experienced typically. Yeah, very well put. And, you know, Tom Acklin wrote, uh, Father Tom Acklin, a Benedictine, wrote a book called The Passion of the Lamb. And it's a very, I didn't get much, you know, I don't know if very many people know about it. It's a very brief book but a deep reflection on it. And there was one point in the book that has stayed with me for years. And it's where he talks about, you know, our understanding of God as omni, omniscient, or omnipotent, or even all merciful. But our vision of a God uh, as omnivulnerable, you know, that who takes upon himself, opens himself radically in love, and experiences the, the weight and the burden of sin in all of its fullness. That our reflection upon love and upon the cross and that vulnerability of, our, uh, of God, you know, opening himself in love for us to the greatest of suffering, which is you know, impossible for us to conceive this experience of separation from the Father. And I think John in his writing is not simply seeking to tell us about that, but I think he's painting a portrait here for us uh, in order to show it to us. And, and in order then that we might be able to enter into and grasp with a greater clarity uh, what he's going to say later. And he knows that we're going to be... Uh, sort of distraught in reading this and that we have to sort of steal our minds and our hearts in order to endure it 
in order that we might be open uh, up to the, the greater thing that is being taught to us. And I, I never do this, but I'm going to jump ahead to a paragraph where he gets to the end of this, just because we're coming to the end here. And I want to prepare us for the, the following week to take it up again. He says in tw paragraph 27, so you could read it on your own as well. He says, I'm fully aware, my good friends, that the struggles I've described will seem to some incredible, to others hard to believe, and will seem to some to breed despair. But to the courageous soul, they will serve as a spur and a shaft of fire, and he will go away carrying zeal in his heart. He who is not up to this will realize his infirmity, and having easily obtained humility by self-reproach, he will run after the former, and I do not know whether he may not even overtake him. But the careless man should leave my stories alone, lest he despair and squander even the little he has accomplished, and thus correspond to the man of whom it was said, but from him that hath no desire or eagerness, even what he hath will be taken away from him. And so, you know, John is very much aware that it's going to seem incredible. And it's even going to seem like a potential path to despair. When in reality, he's saying what is being presented will be seen by the one who has this zeal for God and zeal for his love. It's going to spur, ultimately, it's going to spur a greater desire for God within the human heart. And if one allows himself to be humbled by it, then he might overrun, overtake what we see in these individuals in, in the sense of desiring virtue and, and, and hating vice. But insofar as we lack that eagerness, we can we can will resist this and pull away from it very quickly. And so, you know, if you weren't repulsed by it, I'd say there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and that probably you are a masochist. I mean, I think the, the natural reaction to it is like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But this is where we can't be lazy. We really have to work to understand why is John doing this? This of all things, why is he presenting us with something that he knows is really going to shake people up? And that for some, he has to tell some, don't even read it if you're not, if you're not going to stick around for the, the rest of it. Because it's, it's showing something that's essential to us. And so, again, this requires, I don't want this to sound odd or bad. It requires a kind of spiritual maturity to suspend judgment, to deal with the experience and the feelings of contradiction that you know, arise in our hearts when we read this and allow ourselves to be drawn along and taught by John and to see where he leads us, you know, where the story takes us and what the end of it is. And if we can persevere with John in that, then the, the rewards of that are, are great.
because ultimately the end of that story is joy, you know, an invincible joy, in fact. And I think that's why John is willing to take the risk of doing this, because if, if we're able to endure this, then the, again, we, what we, what the hope that it holds out to us is something that would free us from all anxiety. So, Daniel, final word, or is your hand accidentally up? Really brief, but just like, um, you know, there's this examples from scripture that I think, or at least from the tradition that fit this, like, like St. Peter, he betrayed Christ. And yeah, in the God, in, in, in the Bible, it says how Christ asked him three times, do you love me? And he answered, but it's not like he just went off and that's the, end of the story. Because tradition says that for the rest of his life, whenever he heard a cock crow, he wept bitterly, you know, so he didn't just, he experienced sorrow, even for the rest of his life, it wasn't as if he, like, I think joy and happiness get conflated often, and that if someone experiences sorrow, then they're no longer, they no longer possess joy. But I think that like, the example of St. Peter kind of proves that contradictory and and even the good thief on the cross next to christ you know he can experience the joy of coming to christ while also experiencing the reality of crucifixion you know like it does so i don't know i just i, I guess i just think that i don't know that seems relevant yeah that's a good point and uh, you know it sort of led me to think about something. I know we're a little over time here, but uh, recently I had a funeral he here and, you know, a husband lost his wife of many years who he deeply loved. And it brought to mind this story from uh, a movie about C.S. Lewis and his wife, Joy Grisham. And uh, she had cancer and, uh, and she goes into this period of remission, which is, you know, short-lived. And they decide they're going to take this trip, you know, to see this place that was in a painting on his wall. And so they make this trip out into the country and they actually find the, the place that's depicted in the painting. And uh, he says something to her, you know, this is like the perfect moment. I just, you know, want things to be like this. And she can see what he's doing, you know, that he wants to experience nothing in this moment. He doesn't want to think of anything, let alone her death or, you know, her cancer in that moment, but wants to remain in that joy and not have it colored by the sorrow of her, her impending death and the loss of her. And so she sees what he's doing and she tells him, you, you can't do this. You have, you have to look at the truth honestly. And she says, the sorrow is part of the joy. That's the deal. The sorrow is part of the joy. That she realizes that eventually that the sorrow that he will experience in the loss of her is and becomes part of the joy of having loved her so deeply. 
and you know what certainly Daniel was saying, but everything that we've looked at, that the, the, the sorrow is part of the joy. You know, the sorrow that we have over our sin arises out of our, our love and the depth of our love for God, and the, as well as the acknowledgement of his, his love for us. And the two are linked together. And to remove the, the sorrow or to try to, you know, to remove it from our, our lives is to ignore that truth. And we, we are, are, are losing something for ourselves when we ignore it. And so I, th I think in some way, John is trying to tell us that, you know, that the sorrow is part of the joy, you know, that this acknowledgement of the devastating nature of sin and the death that it brings, both physical and spiritual, becomes a part of the joy of knowing a redeemer who lifts, lifts, lifts out of that and offers us eternal life through his mercy. And if we lose sight of the reality of sin, how, how are we going to appreciate that or see it? So I think this is why John is willing to take the risk of doing what he's doing here in this story. You know, he's saying the same thing that Joy said to C.S. Lewis. You can't do this. You can't ignore sin and its significance and its destructiveness and re really come to know the joy of knowing a savior like the one that we have and the nature of his love. So hang in there, folks. We'll get through this together. <laughs> Hopefully, I won't find myself here talking alone in a few weeks, but uh, but it, it is, it's worth it. So hang tough. Okay, so we'll stop there for tonight. And when we close this all, always with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.